Welcome to Professional Planner's new Ethics and Professionalism podcast series. I'm Matthew Smith, and I'm Head of Retail Content at Conexus and editor of Professional Planner magazine. In this new series, we will engage an ethics expert and a practitioner to talk through real-life ethical scenarios advisors encounter in their everyday professional lives. How individuals act or react when faced with an ethical dilemma will come down to a culmination of factors, including their backgrounds, experiences, education, situational and environmental factors. We've asked advisors, you guys out there, to submit real-life ethical scenarios you may have faced, both client-facing and dilemmas relating to employment structures or situations, with the intention of unpacking these in light of FASIA's new Code of Ethics. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Alan Gray, the Contrarian Investment Manager. Less following the pack, more conviction. That's the Alan Gray difference. Go to alangray.com.au to find out more. We're lucky today to be joined by Dr. Simon Longstaff, the Executive Director of the Ethics Centre, and David Graham, a Senior Financial Advisor at Story Wealth Management. Uh, Simon's in the studio with us here in Sydney, and David is in Victoria in Hawthorne. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. All right, great to have you here. I'll go through a little short bio for each, uh, and then we'll launch into the uh, podcast. Dr. Simon Longstaff is Executive Director of the Ethics Centre and is also co-founder of the Festival of Dangerous Ideas. In 1991, Simon commenced his work as the first Executive Director of the Ethics Centre. In 2013, he was made an Officer of the Order of Australia for Distinguished Service to the Community through the Promotion of Ethical Standards in Governance and Business to Improving Corporate Responsibility and to Philosophy. Simon is an honorary professor at the Australian National University, a fellow of CPA Australia and the Royal Society of New South Wales and the Australian Risk Policy Institute. He serves on a number of boards and committees, including uh, the Independent Integrity Advisor to the Australian Tax Office, as well as the FASIA board. And he stresses that today that his comments reflect his personal views and not the view of FASIA or the view of the FASIA board. David Graham is a senior financial planner at Story Wealth based in the leafy Melbourne suburb, suburb of Hawthorne. David's career in financial service and markets span over 35 years. Prior to 2000, David was a trader in the financial markets for a number of financial institutions in various locations, including postings in New York and Singapore. Since 2002, David has applied his experience and skills to improving the financial well-being of individual clients. He holds a CIMA and CFP accreditations, as well as a Diploma of Financial Advising, a Graduate Diploma of Financial Planning, and a Master of Applied Finance Qualifications. Simon, you work with on the FASIA board, but your mandate in ethics is perhaps much broader. Can you give us a sense for where the financial advice profession is or the financial advice industry is in its journey to professionalism? Well, I think it's in a it's in an absolutely critical phase. It's having done to it by government legislation what others have chosen to do, usually with a runway of 100 years or so, but it's been compressed into a very, very tight period of time, possibly driven by public expectations of the kind that emerged during the Hain Royal Commission. But whatever the reason, you've got a cohort of people in an occupational group 
where for some of them they're having to make an absolutely fundamental change to the way they think. And that's because there are two worlds that coexist in our society, the world of the market, which a lot of people understand. In fact, most human beings going about their day are part of it and it's uncontroversial for them. But there's a second world, which is the world of the professions. And I'll just briefly distinguish between the two. So the market is conceived from its earliest days as a place where people are able to pursue their self-interest. So Adam Smith is the great philosopher who argues the case for the market, for the free market, says it's not through benevolence or love of others that the butcher or the brewer or the baker make provision for a person's dinner. It's just out of self-interest. And all they do in the marketplace is they find out what people want and they satisfy those wants. Now, the professions are completely different. Anybody who volunteers to be part of a profession, first of all, knows that rather than legitimately pursuing their self-interest within the market where the invisible hand is left to do its work to increase the stock of common good, instead they have to subordinate their self-interest. In fact, it comes right at the bottom of a whole series of duties that they owe to others. So a lawyer, for example, has a primary and overriding duty to the court, which comes before the duty to the client, which comes before the duty to the profession, and then the lawyer comes in at last. But the other thing which is really significant is that whereas a merchant has to satisfy the wants of someone, so an industry would do that, members of the professions have to serve the interests of others. So someone walking into a corner store looking to buy a block of chocolate just has to ask the merchant, where is it, find it, pay the price and the exchange takes place. If that same person walks into a doctor's surgery and the doctor knows that they're a diabetic, they'll say no. I'm not going to give it to you because this is not in your interest. And the person might say, oh, but I really, really want it. I'm sorry, I know what you want, but I'm not going to give it to you. I'll give you a lot of money, I'll give you esteem. So it doesn't matter what you offer me, my duty is clear. So that's where the financial advice, financial planner group is heading into that new world. Some have already been there, they've, they've already been part of another profession while they've been performing this. But there's a fairly significant group who are being asked to take on a different worldview with different expectations. And so some are embracing it. They think it's fantastic. I mean, I speak to younger people who are coming in saying, oh, look at the future we could have. And there are others who are a bit indifferent and there are some people just who are being crushed by the expectations. So it's a very mixed story. Mm. And I'll ask you in a moment to maybe give some insight and as much as you can into perhaps um, creating the, the code or your work on the code. Uh, and I know you, you may be limited in what you can perhaps say, but definitely interested in any insight uh, that uh, we can get there from you. Uh, but you did mention um, off the bat that it, it is a critical stage. What, what's critical? What are the, some of the components in terms of where we are in relation to this transformation that is so critical? Well, there's a test almost playing out every day for those who are in this emerging profession and for those who represent them. And it goes to the heart, for example, of some of the things that the Code of Ethics seeks to address. So you take that idea that you have to subordinate self-interest for some public good or the good of others. There's already a question as to whether or not those who represent people in financial advice are operating according to that principle or whether or not every action they take, for example, in their approach to governments or their approach to the media are entirely defined by self-interest. Don't, you know, there's, there's a body of people who don't quite get it yet that this mm. is changing. They're saying, look, my self-interest lies in 
maintaining conflicted remuneration or my self-interest lies in not having to undertake additional education requirements or my self-interest lies in X, Y, Z. And the associations that represent these people, of course, you know, they're, they're driven by their members, but you've got to ask if this is about that fundamental move, who is it that's actually embracing that fundamental ethical change and who is the voice for that? And, of course, there are people there. I mean, there, there are plenty of people who stand aside from their associations and say, no, actually, we understand what's happening in this case. Now, I think the um, the opportunity is not just merely to take this as something which is being done to a group of people by a government that made mm. this decision some time ago and then try and sort of wind it back quietly by doing a deal here or there. Mm. Um, instead, what people should be saying is how do we make this work so that it truly transforms the contribution we make to society and the kind of lives we lead. And I'll give you an example. No one, I mean, I've talked about this plenty of times, but no one really yet seems to have cottoned on to the fact that there's a very real possibility that once this occupation group becomes a full profession, they could go to a government and say, look, well, okay, now that we've made that move, why not recognise that the good we bring to society as a whole is equivalent to that of lawyers and doctors? And I think there's a perfectly reasonable case to be made. And why don't we introduce something like legal aid or Medicare, a statutory fund which is available for every financial advisor to make application to if they're providing face-to-face financial Mm. advice to people of only modest means? If you look at the financial requirements for Australians, particularly in the uncertain future that's emerging now because of changing patterns of work, every Australian needs to be able to have good face-to-face financial advice and not just robo-advice. And it's not beyond wit to think that a very small percentage taken from the fees charged by fund managers, so it doesn't have to come out of the taxpayer's pocket, Mm. that that could progressively be put into a statutory fund to which application can be made. So I imagine a world, if this group can make that transition in good spirit, where you have a mixed practice where you are having high net worth individuals who provide fees and then on top of that you're getting, it won't be a huge amount of money, but a decent and consistent salary to provide face-to-face advice to those who really need it across Australian society, all of it funded by the system itself. Now, that has got to be a marvellous prospect. Do you see people talking up that possibility, imagining a great future? No. Mostly what you hear are the voices of the discontented. And I think that's such a shame because although things are difficult, and particularly for some groups towards the end of their career, there's so much more to be won for the good of the society and for those who perform within this profession, if only they sought to embrace it. Mm. David, how do you see it from your perspective? Are you um, a voice of the discontented? I'm sure that uh, then you're not. You're uh, embracing and, uh, and and getting on with things. How do you see it from your perspective? Yeah, I'm certainly not a voice of the discontented. Um, to, to some of Simon's points there, uh, I think the discontent to some extent is a product of the, the time frame and, and, and being forced into this. Now, um, I guess the time frame depends on how you look at it, could go back as far as, you know, 2012-13 when we had those reforms come through. Uh, people should have seen the writing on the wall and be more um, more heavily guided, can I put it that way, uh, to come to this point now. But it seems that, uh, you know, we've, we've reached a tipping point and, and the people that are discontented, um, you know, will feel aggrieved that they um, they are being forced legislatively into this. But uh, 
you know, it's we're not discontented. We kind of see it as an opportunity. Um, it was interesting that point that Simon was making as well about the um, um, perhaps uh, doing pro bono type work for people who can't afford advice. Um, you know, we, we've talked about that in the past. We're reaching a stage in our business where we could actually um, say for every client coming in, we could do a, a freebie as well on, on the site for someone who needed it. So, you know, the idea is, is uh, the broader public good um, after kind of establishing ourselves in a position where we're comfortable that we can you know, pay our employees and, and still run a business. So um, from our perspective, uh, we, we're kind of taking these reforms on board and saying, well, this is what it is and we think it's for the good of the industry uh, or profession uh, down the track. So um, why fight it? I think it's too late to fight it. Mm. I mean, I wouldn't expect David to have to do all of this pro bono. I think it's marvellous that he and people like him are developing practices where that happens. But that's why I say we need to think about this, not for the sake of financial advice, but for the sake of all those people out there who really need good financial advice. And it's going to be an increasing number of people and won't be able to afford, you know, the full fee to think, let's create a statutory fund like we've done with legal aid, like we've done with medicine, where you can get financial advice of good quality without having to be robo. Because Mm. half of what financial advisors do when their practices is beyond anything to do with technical advice. It's like doctors. If you go into a doctor's surgery, yes, they'll look at what your condition is and they'll prescribe something if that's appropriate. But they'll also talk to you about your world and how you are in and of yourself you talk to financial advisors, most of the time they're not just doing the technical work of giving the advice, they're trying to understand the life conditions of the clients they work with. Often there's really tricky issues they're doing to do with family balancing, intergenerational equity, all sorts of things come up and that cannot be done by a robot. So you need to create a structural system which isn't going to come out of taxpayers' funds. It doesn't have to come out of that. This is a wealthy industry, the fund management part, they can afford a small snip to do this, which could then ensure that people like David can offer that to people. And he'll do some pro bono on top of it, I'm sure, because that's part of the spirit of these places. But at least every financial advisor who now has that term protected under law can do that knowing that there's some backup from a fund Mm. which recognises this is the good of Australia, not just a handful of people. Mm. Do you are there any examples of other industries, either through historical literature or something that you've personally seen, uh, that um, have been at this point before? Oh, yeah, plenty. I mean, the most famous is the surgeons. Yeah, and was it quite traumatic at the at the outset? Well, no one else has had this kind of legislative requirement. In, well, maybe there have been. Look, it's come in and out. Like engineers have been over time, they've gone from being regulated to unregulated, and, and depending on how important society thinks it is to get Mm. this right. But the most famous case, um, which took 100 years or more to take place, was the surgeons because they were originally fused into a guild of barber surgeons. It goes back to medieval, early medieval times when there's some contention about this, but effectively the clerics who used to run the hospitals were denied the right by the Pope of the day to use sharp instruments. So things like surgery and cutting was done by uh, barbers. And which is why the barber's pole is white and red, white for the blood they used to let and the cutting they used to do, and so they're red for that and white for the hair cutting. And they stayed like that until 1800. So that was for hundreds of years they were fused. They, they weren't even a particularly well-respected um, guild. I mean, they were right down the end of the list when it came to those that had prominence in cities like London. And, in fact, the last of the barber surgeons only died in about 1820 or 1840. So you take from 1800 to where they are now, 
when they made that decision to move out of the market, because the guild was a world of the market, into the professions like the physicians had done, and ask, well, how have they gone? Have they suffered terribly? No. They are a very well-respected, not universally, but typically well-remunerated group of people. The goods they provide are recognised by society of being such importance that we do have things like public funding of healthcare to ensure that everybody can have access to it. And yet the Barbers still exist. I mean, we all go and get our hair cut. It's not that they don't do a good and important job. It just doesn't have the same status Hmm. that comes with that profession. And that's the threshold, I think, where financial advisors are. In 50 years or maybe less, people will look back and they'll say, wow, how how fantastic to be Hmm. part of that. Uh, And you're going to have this friction for the time being. I just wish it wasn't made more difficult for people making the transition uh, than it has to be. I think there's lots of things that could be done to... To ease it, and I mean the government is of course responsive to some people, and they've they've lengthened out some of the timing. All of which is controlled by government. The mm-hmm. Fazia, for example, has no control over this. This is set by the government entirely, and we're just sort of bound then to operate within that envelope of time. But I think that if it could be made easier for people, which includes not frightening everybody, then I think we'll get there sooner. Mm. There seems to be a couple of components to this. One is I suppose the ethical uh, skin or the ethical muscle uh, of the individual and uh, the other seems to be that the system that sits, you know, that those individuals, the advisors sit within, um, it's, it must be a, a difficult challenge for the individuals to be able to put their hand up and say, you know, um, I'm ethical and yet still be surrounded by this structure. Well, We've done it before. I mean, yeah. there are plenty of lawyers and accountants and engineers working inside corporations. Mm. So, of course, you know, if you're just a sole practitioner and it's just you that you have to worry about, then the ethical issues are probably fairly easy because it's your own sense of right and wrong that's being applied within the, you know, the framework of professional standards. And so you don't have to have very thick skin. Of course, if you're right in the middle of a corporation, which itself is mm. part of the market, and there's that abrasive moment every day where they're saying, oh, I can't, you know, the lawyer, can't you just backdate that document if it's going to save us a tax? Of course they can't. Uh, or it's an engineer that's been asked to take substandard specs or it's an accountant that's being asked to, you know, to engage in a transfer pricing. And there's a million different things we can all think of. Then in that environment where the abrasive effects are much stronger, then you need a thicker skin. It's a bit like people who ride motorcycles, you know, they, they wear an extra layer of skin with their leathers and things to protect themselves. So, yes, there is a, you know, the thickness of your ethical skin is somewhat proportional to the abrasive nature of the place where you work. But the thing is, once you do enter into a profession, you should never, ever be left just standing alone. And this is one thing, I mean, throughout Australia, it's been a deficiency in our professions. They're very good at punishing people when they do the wrong thing. They're hopeless at standing beside them when they're trying to do Mm. the right thing. And what you hope for is that you get more of that for example, in the emerging profession of financial advice, that those professional bodies to which people choose to belong will stand with them even if they're in one of those most abrasive environments. Yeah. Yeah, I'll come back to that and ask you whether the associations that we have or the representative bodies are perhaps fit for purpose to go forward and try not to get too controversial. Well, I don't know (laughs) because I don't belong to one. Um, So I think David could better answer if he's part of that. Um, Yeah. All I know is that they should be making as constructive a contribution as they possibly can to the transition. 
Yeah. And David, because I know you're you're part of a, a your own licensee. Is that is that right? And do do you feel that? Yeah, that's yeah. And I, I mean, you you must still have your own ethical uh, dilemmas. I mean, you, you look through the scenarios we're going to be talking about uh, in a second. Um, but 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 surely, or certainly, um, the 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 ethical conundrums um, still come at you, despite uh, the fact that you're in more of an independent structure. Yeah, to some extent, yes, and it, it sounds like we're kind of, um, uh, we don't like to think we're getting more ethical because we're in a different structure. We, we hope to think we're ethical the whole time, but uh, when we're under a, a, a larger licensee, um, there were certainly other business considerations. So uh, I, I certainly think coming into this new environment, um, we can see things a little bit more clearly uh, and, and certainly feel less conflicted. So if that's the um, if that's the essence of, of being ethical in this um, profession going forward, then uh, yes, we, we certainly feel like we've uh, it's in our own hands to make that decision rather than having to uh, you know, consider um, uh, institutions or other uh, other providers. Simon, now can you maybe give it a little bit of an insight into into how the you know how your your opinions or views or, or or guidance was taken in 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 you know as part of the FASIA process. It must have been a fascinating process to be part of what's um, now becoming a new profession. Can you give, give yeah, us insight? it is a fascinating thing. Uh, it's also been a very demanding task because of the timetable set by the government and in the legislation it was clear what we had to do. So the explanatory memorandum made it clear that the Code of Ethics not only had to be brought into existence but it needed to go beyond just the law, uh, needed to set something higher than a minimum legal standard. We then had to decide whether or not we'd take the Code of Conduct route where it was lots of detailed prescription or take a route which actually had values and principles, in this case expressed as standards, with a preamble that set it up and we decided to go that route. And as it was, I don't think we were aware, but you take something like the accounting professional and ethical standards board, they've taken very much the same view where it's all about looking for the individual advisor in this case or accountant in the accounting firm mm. to go beyond now just ticking boxes and following mm. rules but to exercise judgment. And, you know, and, and, and there they have to apply the kind of tests we've suggested matter. What would an unbiased, reasonable person possessing all of the facts, what, what, what would they reasonably conclude. So it's not like here's the thing where in black and white says you must do this or not do that. You've got to put yourself into the shoes and exercise judgment. So it's much more respectful of financial advisors as it is of other professions in terms of their capacity to make judgment. And then it was a matter really and all that, you know, the consultation process, the initial drafts and then just working through trying to explain to people the standard of judgment they need to bring to bear within that code as a whole. Mm. And that... Part about bringing people along for the journey and um, we had on a previous podcast, we had uh, Dean Sanders who was the inaugural CEO mm. of FASIA talking about needing for a profession to form, for it to be formulated of the people within that profession but also stakeholders more broadly, clients, um, not just aggrieved clients but for, for the whole community to, to play a part, have a voice in creating a new profession, to what extent is it within FASIA's mandate to be able to facilitate that type of conversation that perhaps could create a, um, you know, a successful transition to a profession in that regard? Well, the, the fir- I think the first thing in terms of that, I mean, this was a decision 
made by government and enacted through parliament. So presumably all of the different voices that Dean mentioned Mm. would have been taken into account when the parliament sat and decided that this is something that should be done. Mm. Aphasia then it's constituted with a mix. It's got people who represent different key stakeholders, like you've got some people who represent consumers and those who uh, represent advisors. Then you've got some independent people like me who are subject matter experts and things like that. So I think they've tried to put it together so that you've got these different key interests all being taken into account, plus also the consultation process. Uh, it's been somewhat disrupted because of the mood now, uh, moved to away from code monitoring bodies and things like that. So there's been a, you know, it's been up and down a little bit, but I think that the intention of the government was to make sure that that happened and certainly that's what FASI has been trying to do to engage as best it can within the time frame that was made available to it. And, of course, it's not just about the code of ethics. I mean, the whole business of becoming a profession also is around the educational standards. And, again, you've seen as much allowance as reasonably can be made within the legislation for people who've done prior learning and things of that kind. For example, the legislation is really, really clear. If you go and read it, you can't take, for example, a professional designation and simply say that counts as a degree. There's just no room in the law for that. So when people say, oh, well, why doesn't FOSIA do this or that to facilitate it, my answer usually is go back and look at what the law allows. We're bound by legislation. And uh, if you don't like the law, then either you're going to have it amended, which I think is very unlikely, uh, or we have to all accept that that is what the parliament determined. Mm. Um, And one final thing, I've I've written a a little bit about Standard 3 and and, uh, some of the what appear to be quite... um, you know, prescriptive language in relation to conflicts. Um, do you have any view, personal view, on on, on standard three and whether well, that standard three is? It just merely it's it, it says what it says that you cannot act, refer, or whatever it is, advise if you have a conflict of interest or duty. There's nothing particularly prescriptive about that. That's what the actual standard is. Kind of hard um, in this industry to to act at all. Then no, I. That, that is rubbish. Yeah. I completely disagree with that. I think there is so much scope for things to be done. It, it, as I say, it's like the accounting body's um, reasonable person test. All you've got to do is ask yourself, in this arrangement, would a completely unbiased person who is reasonable, who has all of the information before them, would they conclude that that arrangement could lead the advisor to put other interests before theirs of the client? Mm. And if you sit there and you put your hand on your heart and say, no, no, no way could a reasonable person do that, then you're fine. For example, does anybody think that a doctor sitting in their surgery has a conflict of interest merely because their patient pays them a fee? Uh, no. So the earning of a direct fee from somebody there is fine. Do they think that because they own their medical practice that they've got a conflict? because their practice is, you know, generating a surplus from which they draw. No, of course not. When there is so much rubbish that's been written about what Standard 3 precludes that I just find it almost fanciful. I actually wondered to myself, what's driving this ridiculous approach to it? It's got to be for reasons other than just what it's about. And I think perhaps it's people who've got an agenda where they're trying to stake this up to undo perhaps the reforms as a whole. Mm. So I just say use the tests that there. It's as I say, unbiased, reasonable person possessing all the facts mm. 
that's the kind of person you say. And if you think that they would say, oh, wow, that's going to induce you not to give advice in the best interests of the client, then you have a conflict. I think Senator Amanda Stoker as well had a a similar train of thought in relation to Standard 3. Um, I'm not sure if you caught that parliamentary hearing, but... uh, I mean, whether she had, I mean, every, I mean, politicians have an agenda as well. I, you know, I'm just curious. I, I don't think it's just media that's that's calling out. Oh, I'm just, I'm, yeah. the media is merely carrying a message. But, you know, senators can be as much at fault in their reasoning as yeah. any other person. And in cases of this kind, I suppose the temptation is to ask, well, what does everybody else do? That, that actually is one of the worst arguments that you can have in ethics to say, just because everybody else does it, it must be right. What you've got to do is to go back to first principles here and you may be doing something for the first time which is the better answer to an ethical question mm. and all the world might say, oh, no, no, just keep doing it. In fact, if you go back and you analyse most of what went wrong at the very root of things like the global financial crisis or we saw revealed in Hain, you don't find a whole lot of bad people deliberately intending to do wicked things. If you ask them why did they do it, they'll say mostly, oh, I didn't see it. Why didn't you see it? Because everybody was doing it. Because that's just the way things were being done around here. Mm. So whether you're a senator or a citizen, whether you're a representative body or whatever, you've got to have better arguments just than, oh, well, that's just the way everybody else does it. Yeah. And I'm really looking forward to getting into the scenarios, which we will do momentarily. I just thought uh, a final point perhaps from David I mean, how, how have you seen, has there been a lot of noise in relation to the Code of Ethics? How, as a practitioner, how have you perceived that? Is that somehow taking your eye off the ball or are you deter- more determined than ever? Well, um, we don't really have a problem with it. Um, I think, as Simon said, it's, um, um, it's, it's a reasonable test that you have. Uh, and you can give the example perhaps where um, you know, people talk about, uh, say, life insurance commissions, for example, um, you know, if, if I'm getting a life insurance commission from a provider and it's the same as the other providers and it's going to be payment for part of an advice engagement, um, you know, perhaps a reasonable person would say, well, that's just a method of payment and so that, that's okay. Um, what, what what's also interesting, though, is um, what Simon said about uh, the code being or ethics being above the law. Uh, all the feedback we're getting back about Standard 3 specifically, is um, lawyers trying to interpret it. So, yeah. And, in fact, uh, Amanda Stoker is a lawyer as well, so it's not any surprise. Um, so it, it's kind of interesting that people are trying to, I think, read a legal overview of this when, uh, as Simon said, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a gut feel, I think, isn't it, about uh, whether it's ethical or not. So, um, yeah, And the good uh, thing about the approach is that it doesn't say any particular thing is allowed or disallowed. You've got to bring your judgment to bear. And most of what I think I've seen as examples of things that are ruled out, there's just no way that that's going to happen. But people don't like having to exercise judgment. They they would much rather have someone give them the Mm. rule, which is where the lawyers come in and that's how they make their Mm. bread and butter. I suppose in an environment where each bank has has dished out more than a billion dollars in reparations, um, you know, it's... Probably no surprise that advisors are thinking to themselves, well, you know, is my the advice that I'm giving perhaps, um, you know, in the future going to be misconstrued by a lawyer and 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 um, and will clients have to be... Well, Kenneth Hayne was really clear in his commentary, both in his interim and his final report about 
what was happening in boardrooms and what was happening behind closed doors with governments. Haynes said the community expects there to be the application of a certain number of what he originally called simple ideas and that he ultimately called fundamental principles. And he warned business, he said, don't think that you just push right up to the edge of what the law might allow if it's in violation of those fundamental principles. So don't do everything that the law might allow. And he warned governments. He said, don't do deals behind closed doors where you water down the application of these principles because you find some kind of cosy arrangement with one lobby group or another. Now, I think what Hain was onto is something which the Australian public generally wants of its politicians, of its company directors, of its financial advisors and those who represent them. Go back to fundamental principle and ask, is this something that in all good conscience you could defend and do? And what Fazio has attempted to do is to provide the principles against which that judgment can be exercised. But it very much looks to the capacity of individual advisers to exercise that judgment rather than doing something just because it can, because of the legal envelope that might or might not allow it. Mm. Great. Yeah, please, David. Um, If this code goes as expected and sticks and the whole uh, profession is transformed, um, we're we're kind of a bit optimistic to suggest that that may help us relieve some of the regulatory burden we and compliance burden that we have. Um, yeah. you know, something like Standard 5, which basically says act in the best interest of the client. Well, if you have that, you don't necessarily need it in the Corporations Act, right? So um, we're kind of positive that if you can, you know, get this right and, and the, the whole profession, you know, takes it quite literally, um, you know, the compliance burden should, should reduce in time. I, should, I think be- you're right. I think you're right, David. That, there's a strong argument for that. Equally, there's a strong argument I also made why government should make provision for the kind of public fund for the provision of advice through a genuine profession to those Australians that really need it but could not otherwise afford it. Mm. And how far off do you think we are of that statutory fund that perhaps is funding, um, you know, people um, to get advice? We're only as far off as the profession wanting to make the case. I mean, why wouldn't you as a government do something like this when it's not going to be taxpayers' funds? Yeah. All you have to do is to make provision for this to actually be done in a way which is supportable. And who loses? Uh, a, a tiny, tiny shaving of the margin on those who are managing funds. That's mm. that's their cost, but for the public good mm. in, in which they participate and benefit. Mm. I suppose it's a leadership question now then, isn't it? It is. It's very much a leadership question. And, you know, you've got to see where do the leaders of this emerging profession see their focus? Is it in trying to wind back the clock or is it in trying to advance this group to a point where they can really make the most of the opportunity that this represents? We're going to move on to the ethical scenarios now. Firstly, thanks to listeners and readers of Professional Planner for submitting scenarios that we've used for this series. If you'd like to submit your own ethical scenario to be in the next series, please do so through the Professional Planner website or email me directly. You can also earn CPD points from this episode. All you have to do is follow the link from the Professional Planner homepage or visit professionalplanner.com.au slash education and answer the questions. Less following the pack, more conviction. That's the Alan Gray difference. Alan Gray take a contrarian investment approach, apply it consistently and invest for the long term. After all, You can't invest the same way as everyone else and expect a different result. Find out more at alangray.com.au. 
Look, it's a great discussion. We could keep going on for uh, for some time, I think. But uh, let's jump into the scenarios, um, if if we may. Uh, the first one, the reparation conundrum. Some years ago, I raised concerns over clients that had lost money due to negligence by my business under previous advisors. The client made a formal complaint and I supported them by discussing it with management. After many months of hard work and stress for the clients, management received legal advice and decided not to compensate the client. The reasoning was that there was little risk that this client would be able to successfully sue the company. My perspective was that regardless of the legal position, the right thing to do would be to compensate the client for the negligence. It was strongly suggested to me by management that I cease trying to help the client and their complaint. The insinuation was that it may be career limiting. Should I pursue the matter or leave it alone? First to you, David, what do you think? Uh, you'd be pretty tough to leave alone, wouldn't it? It's, you know, the, the, the person said that it's the right thing to do and, um, you know, the other position is the legal perspective. So so clearly it's, it's uh, an ethical perspective. You, you'd struggle to leave it alone and live with your own conscience, I would think. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and But it's a, it's a tough one, isn't it, because it's your employer? Well, that's right. Your, your job's particularly on the line, um, you know, <laughs> I think to some extent it's easier to say sitting here in, in my own office where my wife's the boss and controls my employment conditions. Um, but, uh, you know, at some point you, you kind of have to put that on the line and say, well, if you come to work and think you can't put it on the line for your own peace of mind, uh, you do so. That's uh, it's a bold move, David, and uh, yeah. it's <laughs> maybe perhaps one of the reasons you work in your own practice as well because uh, yeah. well I think the other thing is that the approach that you might take is not necessarily to um, just throw in the towel and go away but if you can have an influence on the culture of the firm and, and perhaps turn it around to show that um, uh, compensating and doing the right thing would be a good business decision as well um, mm. you know that's uh, there's different ways of handling this surely to try to put together a convincing case and uh, and work with management to to change their uh, the way they see it yeah. Hmm. Simon, what are, do you have any thoughts on this one? Yeah, a very similar view. I think, firstly, if it does deeply offend your sense of right and wrong, and particularly if you feel that there's a duty owed to the client, you can't just wash your hands of it and say, oh, that's it. Hmm. Uh, of course, it's not that you also have to throw yourself onto the funeral pyre of integrity and away you're gone, you know, few sparks and there's nothing left. As David was suggesting, you might very well find others within the organisation who become allies with you, driven partly by principle, it might even be just an enlightened form of self-interest. But in the end, when it comes to things that really matter, you've got to be prepared to walk. Mm. And the good thing is that I think that there are increasing opportunities for people to find a place to work which aligns with their core values and principles. So if you're, let's assume this is a person who's talented in the core performance of their role, they're principled clearly in the fact that they're concerned about this. There'll be someone else out there who will give you a job knowing that. And, in fact, I, I remember years ago there was a young accountant who came to me who had a similar kind of problem where the employer wanted them to do something which violated their sense. And I told their story about how distressed they were. It was the day before they were going to graduate from university. And Bill Bartlett, who was a partner at Ernst & Young, stood up in this big gathering of accountants and said, if you ever find another person like that, Simon, send them to me, we will employ them at Ernst & Young tomorrow. 
Yeah. And so I think this is where I talked about the profession, standing around and supporting people, not just punishing them. What you should have is a cohort of people within financial advice who say, if there is ever a person who's standing up for principle in this way, let us know because we'll find help you to find the place where you could work. Hmm. Yeah, great. And a uh, reminder to, to listeners as well to uh, if, if these scenarios spark a, um, some thoughts about other situations you've found yourself in, please uh, email me and uh, the scenarios and uh, we'll use them in future episodes. Well, I should also us. mention too that the Ethics Centre offers a free national service. Yeah. So there's no charge. It's called Ethicall. It's, I'll give you the number. It's one 672 303 That's 1-800-672-303. Anyone in Australia from cabinet ministers to farmers can and do phone that number mm. if they want someone independent with whom they can speak where they've got these sorts of ethical issues. Okay. Yeah, great. Um, okay, number two. Uh, any, any other cl- closing thoughts on that one, David, or are you happy to move on to the next uh, Just, just yeah, um, it, as far as uh, getting support from people around you and the um, and the profession in general, um, that's part of what Standard 12 is about as well, isn't it? It's, it's it is. um, holding each other accountable and, and um, I think the flip side of that, holding each other accountable is supporting each other as well. Yep, that's right. Hmm. Um, thanks for that, David. It sounds like you're quite familiar with the code of you done your um you have you completed your exam and gone through uh, yep first, yeah. first out of the blocks in june yeah <laughs> great and how are you finding it uh are you uh, do you find yourself applying the code more and more in your everyday practice uh it's certainly more in your thoughts um so we have um uh six reps all together here uh and four of them are already gone through um so uh, it, it kind of becomes part of the discussion in the office just because it's front of mind at the moment, but mm. if we're kind of hopeful that uh, throughout time, you know, it'll it'll reflect the values of the office. Great. Okay, number two, new client, dying spouse. A new client is seeking aged care advice for her spouse. Married for 17 years but never lived together, each maintaining their own home. The client recently gifted her $500,000 from his bank account. She is now asking under POA, how she should fund his entry into aged care the most in the most cost-effective manner. She has also asked for advice on what else um, his will might need to say to ensure that she is not left without enough money when he dies. He has terminal cancer. Um, two adult children from, a, ch- children from a previous marriage. It seems to me my new client is more interested in preserving um, her share than providing the best situation for her spouse. Um, what is my duty here? Uh, it's a bit of a nuanced one, David. I, I know you've you've been able to read it as well. Have you poured over it and and, and read it a little bit? And what what was your interpretation of of the situation first, and then how perhaps you would deal with it? Yeah, um, my reading of it is that um, this person really has two clients. There's there's um, the the uh, lady herself um, who is the POA, and the lady in her capacity as POA. So they're, they're both the husband and wife. It seems to me are clients at a level um, and so that, that's probably the starting point mm. to see whether you've got a conflict there to start with that's a good uh, point which I think you do um, it, it's it, it's quite grey isn't it <laughs> yeah I, I, Simon I, I, I think it's unclear at the beginning as to who the client is mm. and let, let's just for the sake of argument, imagine it's just one client, which is the woman rather than the person, her spouse, mm. that she's seeking information about aged care for. Then 
it doesn't actually even make it that much easier because then this is where I was talking earlier on about the fact that a financial advisor will often be called upon to do more than just provide technical advice. And so the kind of conversation that an advisor might very well have with their client in this case will have all the facts before them about what might or might not be possible. But nonetheless then ask, do you really want to do these things? Think about the long-term effects on your relationship with other members of the family, uh, how this is going to play out in your life beyond just the calculation of issues of finance and wealth. And that's a much richer conversation you can have, even if it's just a sole client. But I, I suspect with David that he's right in this case, that even by proxy, this is a, you know, there's a conflict here. And this advisor would therefore need to work out, well, who are you going to advise? The woman or the person, her spouse, who's going to be affected by these these decisions about which the advice has been given. Yeah, but part part of the um, part of the running a business um, again, it's easy in, in a small business having your own license is um, taking on the clients who are consistent with your own values as well. Mm. Uh, you know, sometimes that means turning a client away. Unfortunately, uh, now that doesn't necessarily solve the issue here, but. Uh, um, you, know, you, you have to um, you have to pick and choose your clients sometimes. Mm. You, uh, I presume that the aged care area is is probably an area that uh, there's quite a lot of ethical conundrums. David, come up. Uh, do, do you deal with a lot of aged care in your business? And uh, a little bit, a little bit. It's becoming more and more. Um, and and you, you kind of get some three classes of people: people who are. Uh, in a hurry to get something done, people who are clearly acting in the interests of their generally their parent, um, and usually the dynamic where there's um, uh, two or three children all with conflicting uh, uh, um, agenda, shall we say, yeah. and uh, not necessarily acting uh, collectively in the client's best interest, the, mm-hmm. the aged care um, person's interest. So uh, uh, each one really has to be taken on its merit. Um, and no, no two are the same. Yeah. And do you find yourself um, making assumptions or judgments on uh, the individual that you're sitting in front of quite often in this case? Are you saying to yourself, well, if you need to make the decision, well, this perhaps isn't a client that doesn't that fits with uh, yeah. what we're trying to do? Yeah. One of, the, one of the fortunate things we have is a lot of um, the circumstances and we're advising here is with an existing client putting uh, one of their parents into aged care. So someone, someone who we already have a relationship with and who we already know um, and trust them as much as they trust us. So uh, that, that's a good basis to start. Um, where people are coming in cold off the street, it, it is a little bit more difficult mm-hmm. to kind of get the the, the uh the uh, agenda down in a fairly short period of time. And that's where the time pressures come in. Often people are coming in uh, and they say, you know, I've got two weeks to make this decision. Um, you know, it's very difficult to learn a lot about people in that circumstance and, and to some extent that um, uh, can be telling about those people's agendas as well. Okay, great. And I think the final one today is is probably going to be I could probably predict the outcome given the response to the first one. Uh, it's called Business Owner Does It Their Way. Uh, senior financial, as senior planner, business owner, and, and responsible manager, set up an SMSF for an overseas client and made himself the trustee of the fund. When concerns were raised with one of the other responsible managers in the business, we were brushed off. So I suppose the inference is, uh, what, what's the what's the what's the ethical 
um, action here, David? Uh, in the vernacular, yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, Pretty straightforward one. I mean, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, it's um, it's always been a matter of policy um, through our journey uh, that you, you're not a trustee of clients anything because um, that immediately brings you into conflict. Anyway, uh, people will ask you to do that, and you really kind of have to decide whether you want to be their advisor or you want to help them from a trustee perspective. Um, uh, and you know, um, responsible managers there, um, they're put, being put under pressure there as well. Uh, that's um, that's not ethical behaviour either. But I think what this scenario points to is a culture within a within a business, doesn't it, Simon? Well, certainly, if it's just a brush off uh, without any conversation, my way or the highway, then that's not really a place which is building a capacity for reflective practice, which is what you would want amongst you know, professional peers. I mean, most professions, they'd say, look, I've got a reasonable concern here, let's talk about it. And you'd offer some reasons at least for the position. And then if people don't find those reasons adequate, they can make a decision beyond that. Yeah. Thank you very much for your time, uh, Simon and David. Uh, Really appreciate it and your insights. So thanks. Thanks Thanks, again. Thanks, man. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Ethics and Professionalism podcast. A quick reminder that you can earn CPD points by visiting our website. If you'd like to submit a scenario, please send me an email for a chance to have it featured on an upcoming episode. In the meantime, please keep an eye on our channels to stay updated on future episodes.